uh, it's good to see all of you um, amidst the, the din and chatter of, uh, of good conversation and reconnecting and amidst the wafting smell of bacon coming up through the floorboards. Uh, it is, it's good to be together for church today. Uh, if you are new, if you're visiting, if you haven't seen us in a while, welcome. Uh, my name is Matthew. I'm the senior pastor here. On behalf of all of us at Pleasant Street, we're so glad that you could be with us today. Uh, when we gather, as we do, we do it for just these purposes, to reconnect with each other, um, to fellowship, to share meals, to remember uh, God's goodness in our lives, and to lift our voices to sing His praises. And so friends, as we get started, would you rise in body and spirit? Well, let's do that together now with our call to worship. Friends, the Lord is with you. O oh God, you summon the day to dawn, you teach the morning to awaken the earth. For you, the kings of the earth shall bow, the poor and the persecuted shall shout for joy. Great is your name. Great is your love. Amen.
Father, we who own more than we use, proclaim more than we experience, and request more than we need. We seek your salvation, then act like we save ourselves. We experience your grace, then act defeated. Bring us to an unbroken commitment and a steady trust. Through Jesus Christ, who is the way of hope. You may be seated. Let's take a moment now in a silent confession to God. Through the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord, we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. The riches of God's grace have been poured out upon us. Praise be to God, who has chosen to make us his own. Praise be to God, who forgives and cleanses us. Praise be to God. All around us, we are always being formed by things patterns, behaviors, practices, we are giving and receiving identity. When we come into church, that is no different. But the things that form us here are these rhythms of confession, acknowledging our sin and our failure, being reminded again of God's goodness and what he has done for us. And the fruit, the response of that is a new way of life that shows up in a very small and simple thing such as opening our hands to be generous. I have a friend who's a church planter, his name's Kyle, and when he was first planting his church in the Bay Area of California, he told me this story. He would have people over to his church uh, who didn't know anything about Christianity, and one night they were having dinner, and his friend suddenly had this thought. He said, wait a minute, how does your church get money? And Kyle said, well, uh, um, the church, people give to it. And, he, and this guy was like, People give their own money, like freely, for this, because they want to? And he said, yeah. Friends, never underestimate the simple, profound power of these things that God is doing in us. 
when we open our hands now together, it is a response of freedom and joy to God. I want to invite our deacons up right now who are going to help us to give generously. And we have two offerings this morning that I want to highlight for you. The first is for the work of our congregation and the ministries that we support. And the second offering that will be coming around is particularly for our youth ministries so that we can be able as a church to help contribute and fund uh, youth ministry opportunities, especially for those uh, in our youth fellowship who might not be able to afford it themselves. And so, friends, let's respond to God together.
Christ is with you. Let's take a moment now to just greet our neighbors. Kids from Kids Street come up here. <laughs> People of God, what is our prayer? to love and serve Jesus. Good morning. I'm Emily Fortin. I'm one of the elders here at Pleasant Street, and it's my privilege to lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When we consider your hand, your, he your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which ha you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all the flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, and the flesh, and the fish in the sea, and all that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, we are so glad, despite your majesty, that you are mindful of Pleasant Street Church in Whitensville, Massachusetts. You care for each of us individually. You care about those in our congregation struggling with chronic health issues. We lift up especially this morning Nellie and Carol, Cindy and Karen. We ask for healing. We thank you for the work of the Vision Committee that has been diligently meeting for the past six months to discern your will for Pleasant Street and develop a new vision statement. We ask for guidance for those who are nominated to serve on council and give them, gui and give them guidance as they decide if they should accept the call. We pray that you would provide sufficient elders and deacons to serve. We ask that you bring peace where there is war and violence, that you bring unity where there is political division, bring hope and comfort in the midst of destruction of hurricanes and typhoons. We thank you that you give us hope in the darkness. You are sovereign and you are in control. Help us to turn to you. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians. There are some verses from chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 4. Maybe easiest to follow along on the screen. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, it is good to be back with you after a couple of weeks of a break from speaking to you and also from 1 Corinthians. As we turn back to it this morning, would you join me in prayer? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have brought all of us here to this place this morning. Some of us see that easily. Others of us find that a bit of a mystery. You have brought us here to show us Jesus and to show us what it would mean to live like him. We ask now that you would take these words from Paul and that you would make them words for us also so that we might lift up our eyes and see your glory and know what it means to follow you. In your name, amen. Ten years ago, Mars Hill Church in Seattle seemed like a church that was too big to fail. It also seemed like the hope of the future of Christianity in a secular world. Somehow, Mars Hill Church was right smack in the middle of perhaps the most post-Christian and hostile city at the time, Seattle. And it was thriving. 
In 2013, Mars Hill was drawing an average weekly attendance of more than 12,300 people across 15 locations. That same year, Mars Hill Church planted 53 churches in India and sponsored the development of 20 more church planters. It released 50 original worship songs in that year. It gave away more than 3,000 Bibles, and it took in nearly $25 million in tithes and offerings. Less than a year later, it was gone. All of it was just gone. How did that happen? The lead pastor, planter, and rock star, Mark Driscoll, resigned. Two months later, the church closed its doors. Every single one. It is without a doubt the case that Mars Hill Church and its success was built around a cult of personality. In fact, Mark wanted it so. They built it around Mark Driscoll, or rather, the persona of Mark Driscoll, a leader who was brash and powerful and confident and in-your-face and uncompromising and unapologetic and successful and compelling. He was the man with the words and the vision and the stridency to convince you that it could change your life. But he was also a liar, and he was domineering, and he was self-aggrandizing. Christianity Today has been running a fascinating podcast conversation about Mars Hill called The Rise and Fall of, of Mars Hill. And in one of the episodes, Mike Cosper, who is the show host, is interviewing a senior leader at Mars Hill. And they're talking about exactly this moment where the church is doing hundreds of baptisms and opening campuses and its success all the way. And you know, it's interesting because the interviewee who he's talking to says, we just kept winning. Mark looked unstoppable and untouchable. We rented out the Seahawks, the Seattle Seahawks football stadium for Easter. They had NFL players on the stage. We just kept winning. What we needed was to lose. We needed to fail. What? The Mars Hill story reveals one of the deep paradoxes of Christianity. In the Christian life, success and strength are very dangerous. Or as Paul put it, the foolishness of God is wisdom and the weakness of God is strength. This is a theme at the heart of what Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthians in this letter, and it's going to take him 16 chapters to make his point. And it's a theme that we are still struggling to understand 2,000 years later. Friends, everyone wants to belong to a successful, thriving church, but what Paul is saying, among other things, is don't mistake success for God's presence. Don't mistake strength for the power of God. For my friends, God works in weakness. In the Christian life, success and strength are dangerous. And sometimes that shows up most clearly in the kind of leaders we choose. Well, that should be obvious, right? That's like Christianity 101. Follow Jesus. Don't follow someone else. Except that Paul spends about two whole chapters of precious papyrus paper going over this basic idea. 
It's, it's almost like, did you hear it this morning? He's reintroducing himself to the congregation and, and them to themselves. He says, I am Paul. Apollos and I were partners. We had a common mission. We are not the mission. We had a common mission. You are a church. We are not God. You are God's temple. And yet apparently it's not obvious to this church. You know, in some ways, if you look at it, you could say that Corinth was a very successful church. They tick off most of our boxes for church growth, right? They, they are a diverse group of people. There are Jews and Gentiles there. There's a, there's a pretty significant amount of socioeconomic diversity there. Uh, they also seem to have a lot of really, really gifted and talented people there. And you even have a few famous and prominent members of the city there, too, Gaius being one of them. And Corinth also has been influenced by a number of very prominent church leaders in the ancient world. Paul, Apollos, Peter. But Paul does not seem to be applauding the church for their metrics of success. No, he seems to be saying, guys, that's not a feature, that's a bug. In every letter that Paul writes, you have two things going on. You have the church. And you have the wider surrounding culture. And each letter, one of the issues that Paul is dealing with, the churches that he's writing to, is how the church is relating to the wider culture. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is writing to Christians who are so different from their surrounding culture, it is causing suffering. And so Paul writes to them to say, hey, you're suffering. This is not the end of the story, guys. In fact, it will lead to glory. But in 1 Corinthians, a church he planted around the exact same time as Thessalonica, the problem doesn't seem to be that the church is so different from the wider culture. The problem is that it's the same. And that is causing suffering. Corinth is the same as its wider culture in one very important way. The Corinthians keep looking to self-glorifying leaders to give them an identity. You can look at it there. It's right in, in chapter 4, verse 7. We didn't read it, but you can look at it now. Paul asks a really interesting question. He asks, who makes you different from anyone else? But you could also translate it like this. Who defines you? That's an identity question. And it reveals some of what's going on in Corinth. Who defines you? Well, the answer at the moment is Apollos does. Paul does. Peter does. And that somehow the church is allowing, even wanting, these leaders in the church to define them. And why is that a problem? Well, just look one verse right before it in, in, in chapter 4, verse 6. It is making them walk around puffed up, inflated, over which important leader, person knows their name, who is friends with them on Instagram, whom they follow, who knows them. It's making them competitive, self-righteous, and intolerant. But it's why this is happening to them that I think is important for us. And to understand that, I need to help us note a couple important things about Corinth. So just give me a moment here, right? Something that we should know about the city of Corinth is that it was rebooted. Well, what do you mean by that, right? Well, there was, there was this ancient Greek city called Corinth. Well, they didn't submit to Rome, so Rome came and blew it up. 
They literally burned the entire city to the ground, and they deported all the inhabitants away as slaves. And then it lay in ruins for about a hundred years. Well, then Rome decided that they wanted to rebuild it. And so they rebuilt it as a Roman colony. And they brought in their own population. And who did they bring? Slaves. And people who were formerly slaves, imported from all these other regions of the empire. In other words, the city that Paul is writing to is full of people who have all come from somewhere else. No one knew who they were or who they used to be. Could you imagine Whitensville rebooted? Just for a moment. It's kind of fun. Imagine coming here and no one knows you. Imagine coming here and there's no history at all. What could a fresh start mean? And even more so for them, because the ancient world was incredibly stratified and there's very little opportunity for anyone to change their career or their identity. So Corinth becomes a rare place in the world where people could and are looking for a new identity. And it's also rich, which helps, right? It's an important uh, city on an isthmus between two ports, and so it's a place of trade, and so you have people coming from all over the world, and you have opportunity. You could start a business. You could choose new gods to worship. You could be somebody. And this is what makes people open to something new like Paul's gospel. It's part of the reason that Christianity can get a foothold, because there's all these people living anonymously in a big city. In Corinth, you have a whole city of people who are looking for an identity, but it also means that lodged deep in the soul of this community is a hunger to know that they matter. And, as maybe is not any surprise to us, you have one other thing then in Corinth too. You have a whole cast of characters who are willing to offer you an identity. <laughs> There's this great... Uh, there's this great philosopher who uh, quotes what it was like to go to a big sporting event um, in Corinth at the time, and he says it like this. He says, there's crowds of philosophers around Poseidon's temple, and they're shouting each at each other, and their disciples are fighting with each other, and you have writers who are reading aloud in the public square their stupid works, and you have poets who are reciting poems, and jugglers doing tricks, and fortune tellers interpreting fortunes, and lawyers innumerable perverting judgment, and peddlers peddling whatever they happen to have, which sounds a little bit like my newsfeed, to be honest. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> Corinth is full of philosophers and thinkers and religious cults, and everybody's hawking their wares. And they do this with words. Rhetoric. Public speaking was a big deal in Corinth. And the best rhetoricians there, they had their own unique style, right? They had a niche they could move you emotionally. They could get you to feel things. They could make you want to do something. And people had started to evaluate these leaders based on how well they felt moved. How well this person makes me want to follow you. And Paul says, yeah, guys, you have started to do that to Apollos and me. 
And the result is that you've forgotten who you are and who we are, which is what happens when leaders matter too much. It's called idolatry. So in Corinth, you have the church and you have the wider culture, and Paul is saying the problem is that the church is not that the church is so different from the wider culture. The problem is that it's the same. They are picking and evaluating leaders based on how powerful, effective, attractive, successful they were. And because those leaders could make you feel strong and successful. And that is, after all, what we all want, right? You know, it's ironic. I find it really ironic. We have more resources, tools, and words to talk about identity than previous generations had for a long time. If I were to ask my grandfather today, well, who were you? He would not even understand the question. And yet our identities are more fragile than ever. We talk about identity all the time and no one seems to know who they are. We are looking for it everywhere and hungry all the time. This is why personality cults and celebrity are so dangerous and so prevalent for us today. And it makes us vulnerable to powerful leaders who can make us feel things, who look like success, who look powerful and important. Friends, the charisma of a super confident leader makes you feel confident. Caitlin Bedia, a former managing editor of Christianity Today, she lives in New York City. And that means, among other things, that she sees celebrities all the time, on the subway, on the street. She just wrote a brand new book called Celebrities for Jesus, and she writes about our modern fascination with celebrity. She says, when I spot a celebrity, I have this weird emotional response. She feels kind of excited to see someone from a movie in the flesh. She wants to be near them. She says, there's this magnetic quality to them. As, if, as if, if I could just get near a famous person, I will absorb some of their glow. I don't know how many famous people come to Whitensville, but I imagine we can imagine what that would feel like. She writes, there's a reason it's called celebrity worship. Our obsession with celebrities or trying to be celebrities ourselves betrays a spiritual hunger. Oh, isn't that interesting? She says, churches are emptier, but the hunger for meaning and worth is as strong as ever. What humans of the past found in traditional worship and family and local community and participation in institutions, we now seek by consuming images of people we don't and can't know. Wow. Friends, the charisma of a super confident leader makes you feel confident. This is what leaders do. They show us the life that we want, and we follow them, not because we want them to take us somewhere, but because we want to be like them. And the faith of a super confident church leader makes you feel confident. See, what Caitlin, is, uh, what Caitlin Beatty is trying to show us is that the modern North American church 
is suffering, not because we are so different from the wider culture, but because we are the same. We are the same. And how many scandals will it take for us to learn the cost of celebrity and platforms and self-glorification baptized as evangelism and church growth? You would think it's obvious, but apparently it's not. And like for the Corinthians, it's why we do it that I think is really important. Friends, we follow strong leaders because we want them to lead us to strength. We do not want to follow weak people because we don't want to be weak. Look at the job descriptions for leaders and pastors of churches in North America. You can Google it. You'll see them out there. Look at the verbs. Look at the adjectives. Charisma. Lead. Cast vision. Dynamic. Confident. Power. Take hold. Challenge. Drive. It would seem that... Almost, you need not apply for leadership in the church if you're not the loudest person in the room. And, right, I know what you're thinking. Of course we need leadership. And today, in churches more than ever, yes and amen. But do you know what those words tell us? They tell us something more. They tell us what we believe leadership is. And that belief has been shaped far too much by a culture of self-glorification, self-assertion, and personality. The leader teaches us the best life, my friends, but if we follow leaders who grasp at power and success and reputation and title, then we will become people who grasp at power and success and reputation and title, and it will make us arrogant and self-righteous and competitive. And for both Christians and leaders, what is at stake is we forget who we are and we begin to see ourselves as people without any weaknesses at all or any needs. And what is lost is the truth of the gospel message that Paul has been trying to tell us for four chapters so far, which is that God works through weakness and foolishness and the things that are not. Which, Paul says, is the message I brought to you in the first place. Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, who is a very famous and prominent uh, leader and preacher, in the mainline tradition, she was once interviewed by Christian Century magazine. This was several years ago. I've lost the reference. The interviewer was asking Taylor about the decline of mainline Christianity. The interviewer was referencing how for most of uh, uh, 19th and 20th century uh, American history, the mainline church in America was a bastion of power, a place of influence on political life and culture, but it's not anymore. The Reverend Taylor said, yes, I know about the decline. And the interviewer asked, well, what do you think about this loss of influence and power and status in American culture? Barbara Ann Taylor replied without missing a beat, maybe our churches can finally do some good. And I can imagine Paul himself saying, you know what, I think she's getting it. Friends, Christ crucified still looks like foolishness. 
It doesn't lead to personal happiness or comfort or gratification. Christ crucified is not a good death avoidance strategy. And Paul says, I know. Friends, Paul was ambitious. He was successful. He was going places. And then he met Jesus. (laughs) He says, I used to be at the beginning of the parade, folks, and now I am the garbage of the world. And if you want to know glory and power and freedom and success, come join me at the end of the line. Among the slaves, the anonymous, the forgotten, the useless, the garbage of the world. We want to follow successful leaders. The trouble is, Paul says, the successful leader is at the back of the procession in chains. Now, this is not because good, because suffering is inherently good in itself. No, it's because in a world of self-glorification, where everyone wants to be first, the end of the line is where you find Jesus. Jesus, who was a man of absolutely no reputation. It should be obvious, but apparently we forget. We forget. We have four detailed accounts of his life and not one mention of what he looked like or the sound of his voice. Or how tall he was, or how much money he had. In fact, by all and every account, he should not be remembered at all. He spent the first 30 years of his life in obscurity. Then he picked incompetent friends who couldn't remember what he said five minutes ago, much less spin it. Jesus then died horrifically, left no writings of his own. He built no buildings. He did not run for any office. And yet, as Dallas Willard once wrote, Jesus stands quietly at the center of the contemporary world as he himself predicted. Why? Because in a world of false selves and shiny fake images, the thing about Jesus that sets him apart from everyone else is that the man is the message. Jesus is the message, and he is the same all the way down to the bottom. And so he is the only one in whom it is safe for us to place our faith. For he alone is who he says he is. And he alone does what he says he's going to do. And he says, I have sheep, and I know them by name, and I give them names, and I call them by name, which is an identity statement. And Jesus says, if you want to know life, then give up everything you have and are and aspire to be, which you are using to make a name for yourself. And I will give you a name. And you will have life. Because, of course, the paradox of Christianity is that Jesus, who seemed like nobody special, was, in fact, always and only the only one who was everything. Jesus is the only one who ever had any reputation worth having at all. And his reputation was that he was the beloved of God the one worthy of all glory and praise. And 
And Paul tells us in Philippians that he gave all that up before he got here. Why? So that he could give it to you. So that he could give it, bless it, bestow it upon you. Which is what he does on the cross. Which is still foolish to the self-glorifying, but life itself to those who have no claim and title themselves. Carl Lentz was another famous, attractive, charismatic preacher. He was the lead pastor of Hillsong, New York. He was Justin Bieber's pastor, which is claimed fame in of itself, right? Well, not so long ago, news came out that Carl Lentz had been having an affair. And what else came out was that the whole church had been wrapped tangled, bound up in this cult of personality. It had become celebrity idolatrous. And it was, in fact, Justin Bieber, of all people, who sounded like a truly spiritually grounded man in an interview in GQ. I'm not making this up, people. Justin Bieber, in GQ magazine in 2021, said this, I think church can be surrounded around the pastor, and it's like... This guy has the ultimate relationship with God that we all want, but we can't get because we're not this guy. But that's not the reality. The reality is every human being has the same access to God. Or as Paul put it, don't you know? Don't you know that you, yourselves, are God's temple? Don't you know that you yourselves have God's Spirit among you? And so you don't need to boast about leaders to get access to God or get Him to like you. God's given you everything. All of those leaders, they're all yours. And you are the leaders, and everything is yours. Why? Because all of it is Christ's, and Christ is of God, and so are you. Christ is yours, and so is his reputation. And so, my friends, you are free not to matter. You are free to gather for worship amongst other ordinary people. For you already have all of the glory that God could ever possibly have given you. Himself. Himself. Which is, after all, the purpose of church in the first place. We don't do this to prove that Christianity is cool or credible or naturally attractive. We do this because this is how God makes little Christs. And God does his best work, one unremarkable, unposted, unnoticed moment at a time. Sometimes he might even use a pastor. This week I was asked at our regional church meeting we call classes to examine a new pastoral candidate. And one of the questions that I asked this new candidate, whose name is Joel, was this. I asked, who's been a mentor 
who taught you something about what it means to be a pastor. And Joel's a thoughtful guy, and he thought for a moment. And then he told me this story about a Reformed Baptist pastor in his mid-60s whom none of us have ever heard of before and will never meet. His name is Joe. He preached exegetically, and he smoked a pipe, and he had calluses on his hands. Well, it turns out that Joel had a dear friend named Jeremiah who died two weeks after his wedding. They had been working together, renovating a very old post and beam barn, working long days, and Jeremiah was driving an hour to work each day. The last time Joel saw his friend, he wrote Jeremiah a paycheck, and then he watched him drive away up over a hill. Half Half an hour later, Jeremiah fell asleep at the wheel. And the check was never cashed. The next day, everything seemed blurry. Joel had heard the news the night before, but somehow he couldn't quite believe it. You know that moment that you're in after horrible, shocking news? Maybe they got the name wrong. Maybe it's a dream. Everything looks better in the morning anyway, right? So Joel drove to the work site and he watched the sun come up and he watched that hillside where he'd last seen Jeremiah's taillights disappear. He says, then I heard a vehicle. And I listened as it came up over the hill. But instead of Jeremiah, it was Pastor Joe. He drove down toward me in his old, unremarkable Ford pickup truck. And he parked. He wasn't in a hurry, but he moved with a purpose. Without a word, he grabbed me and he hugged me. Not a one-armed handshake hug, a bear hug. He held me, and I cried, and he cried too. When he finally spoke after a long time, it was only to recite the first few verses of Psalm 139. He stayed with me for the rest of the morning until he was able to convince me that I should spend the rest of the day with my family. I don't know how he knew where to find me. What struck me about that day, Joel writes, was that Joe was just there, present with this humble authority. I will never forget God's providence that day and sending this man to find me. And what strikes me about that story is it did not take a seminary education or a title to do any of that. There wasn't anything special about Joe at all in that story. He is entirely unremarkable. Why, if you think about it, any of us could be Joe. Showing up, embracing a sister or a brother in the strange, weak, and foolish moments of our lives. Moments where we are doing something very ordinary, like entering someone's weakness at the bottom of a hill, in the depths of despair, in a hospital room, or a prison, and finding together that God is very, very strong. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, 
You have shown us that the way up is down. And yet it looks so foolish. And so we ask, O oh God, that by your Spirit you would help us not just to see that the way up is down, but that you would help us to interpret and to know what that means. Help us to notice the places in our lives and in our world that are beneath us so that we might see portals toward knowing you better and give us the courage to set down whatever we are holding, to get on our hands and knees and crawl through them. Amen. When we gather for church, we do so to hear from God, to receive his word, and like today, it could be a lot to make sense of. Fortunately, this is not the only moment where we do that. Part of the ways that we do that together is by giving ourselves opportunities to reflect on and take home what it is we're learning. One of those ways is for our third through fifth grade students to have a chance to talk with some of our church leaders about the, what they're learning. Those are our Echo Age students. So I want to invite you guys to come up. If we have those with us, we'd have a blessing for you. Do we have some of those folks? Maybe? No? Well, wherever they are today, uh, let's say this blessing to... Oh, we do have some folks. Hey, guys. It's moving too fast. As these students and others who are perhaps home or in other places today, as they go, friends, what is our prayer for them? Almighty and loving God, thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to believe what we have heard and live in ways that honor you above all. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve Jesus. Friends, we, can, may, we make our response to God together by rising in body or in spirit and singing, Jesus shall reign.
Brothers and sisters, we lift our voices in praise to our reigning King, and we lift our voices in prayer to Him too. Would you join together your voices in the prayer that He taught us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And friends, that glory that belongs to Jesus, he has returned back on you with a blessing. Would you lift your eyes, open your hands and receive it. Friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Let's go singing.
and serve Jesus Christ.